Let's turn our attention to God's Word this day. We're in 1 Peter. I'm going to be re- begin reading today in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5, and read through verse 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you've breathed out, superintended to ensure it could be written down and made available to us. A breathed out word that now your Holy Spirit illumines in our hearts as your children as we read it, as we think about it and reflect on it. Would you plant it in us this day? Help us to see and understand why you've said what you've said to recognize its implications for what we think, how we act. Give us alertness of mind in this time, I pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, those of you that are somewhat alert would have noticed that, uh, no, this was not 1 Peter 5, 1-4, part 6. You know, we, uh, we actually are leaving verses 1-4. to uh, Verses 1 to 4, as you remember, were focused on how God intends leadership to work within the body of believers, the local church. And fundamental to that understanding is the idea that God wants leadership in his church, his flock, to be countercultural. He doesn't want the church to look like world's organizations. He doesn't want it to run the way the world's organizations run. And he certainly doesn't want leaders behaving in the way the world's leaders behave, whether that's in civil settings or corporate settings. He doesn't want believers that way. You remember Matthew chapter 20, after seeing how the, uh, the disciples were talking about leadership, and he, he rebukes them in a way, and he says, this is how the world's leaders act. And he uses the phrase, not so with you. And... We looked at nine different leadership lessons that emerge in those things. And brothers and sisters, the honest truth of this is the big struggle that I had is there seemed to be so much more that could be said about those verses. It's like, well, slap your hand. Let's move on. I mean, it's like, but there's so much. Almost like God assumed churches would have trouble understanding leadership that pleases him. And, of course, I'm being facetious because God knows churches will have trouble with leadership that pleases him. Because it doesn't come natural. It only comes supernatural. What we would do naturally is going to end up, no matter what our intentions are, putting us in a place contrary to where God wants us to be in terms of leadership. And that's not just a theoretical concept. Anybody that has had their eyes open at all, anybody that's looked at anything, anybody who's been a Christian for a while has to be struck by the fact that you know, I don't necessarily, my understanding of the way churches kind of run, that doesn't seem to run that way. <laughs> Things don't seem to work out this way. And uh, God is saying, yeah, and here's what I want to be done about it. Well, I'm not even going to review those nine lessons today. We're moving on. Uh, I, I encourage you to go back and review those things. And uh, But today, 
uh, we're shifting in focus a little bit. We're, we're moving from talking about the under-shepherds. And we're going to start talking about some things, because God talks about them, that pertain to the sheep in the flock, not the under-shepherds' responsibilities within the flock. So we're shifting gears a bit. And in verses 5 to 7, we encounter three important choices that God is calling for the sheep in the flock to be making. The first of those is, I want you to be making the choice to be subject to the under-shepherds. The second issue, the second choice, is I want you to choose to clothe yourselves with humility. And the third issue is I want you to practice prayerfulness in response to life. So let's look at each of these, and we'll move forward into them. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. By the way, it's subject to the elders, not subject to the elderly. Just an important grammar issue here. Uh, Important grammar issue. Sheep within the flock are to make a choice to be subject to the leaders, the elders, within the flock. That's what God calls for them to do. Uh, Here's the point. God cares about how we respond to the elders, just like he cares about how the leaders in the church act. He spent those four verses talking to the leaders, now he's talking to the sheep, and he's saying, I care about you guys now too, and there's, I have expectations of your response within the context of the flock, just like I have concerns for the response of those that are given the task of under-shepherd within the flock. The word elder here, uh, presbyteroi, is the same word we encountered in verses four, 1 to 4, talking about elders. It's the same word. It's not changing terminology here. Uh, younger, as it's talking here, likewise you who are younger, the Greek word neos, which uh, is not so much chronological, it's not so much talking about your age, like I'm 16 or I'm 23. It's a word that has to do with newness in the sense of, of, of being new on the scene, not, not so much new in time. Uh, it's, a, it's a newness. And most of the Greek scholars look at that and they say, okay, well, what's going on here is he's really talking about people who are younger in the faith, newer to the scene, newer in the flock, not necessarily newer in life, as in the case of a 4-year-old over against a 14-year-old over against a 44-year-old and so on, but rather newer to the flock. You are, you are in that stage. And so, and that would make sense in my opinion, since he's really contextually talking about the flock and leadership and response to it. Uh, What's the point? Well, the command here is primarily geared to issues related to leaders. It's not a command having to do with age-related etiquette. Now, having said that, understand, other places in the scripture address some age-related etiquette. You know, we are to show respect. We are to show honor uh, toward, toward those who are older and, and not younger. So it's not like that's an unbiblical concept. But what I'm challenging you about is that's not what he was trying to get at here. Uh, what he's getting at here is how, we're, how the church sheep are supposed to be responding to those who are the under-shepherds, the presbyteroi. And the command is... I want you to choose to submit to them. 
The word submit here is hupotasso, which we've encountered already throughout First Peter. It had to do with how we are to make a choice to respond to civil authority. It's how we are to make a choice to respond to work authorities. It's how we are to make a choice in First Peter 3 to respond in the context of the home, husband, wife to, to husband. Uh, it's the same word. The idea of hupotasso means to willingly accept the authority of another, to, to make a choice to adapt ourselves to the needs or the desires of another. It's, a, it's not a new word, in other words. It's the same concept. And now it's drawn into play in relationship to the body. He says, listen, if you're part of a flock, God is calling for you to make a choice to submit to, to to leadership, to respect and support that leadership. Uh, trust their oversight. Encourage them in their task. Much like a wife encouraging her husband in the task that God's given them. Uh, Hebrews 13, I read this to you last time, but Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Same word, by the way. Now, hupotasso. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would not be of any advantage to you. Thus implying there's a lot of groaning going on at times among under-shepherds in the context of church life and flocks. Uh, anyway, he says, this is what I want you to choose to do. Now, we also discovered back in verses 1 to 4 that God says to the shepherd, I don't give you the right to bully anybody. You can't force anybody to make a choice to be submissive. Uh, same in the home. Husband can't beat up the wife, so she'll submit. That, that's not the content. It's a, a hupotasso is a willing choice. Somebody has to choose to do that. Uh, he says, listen, shepherds, I'm taking care of this. I'm addressing the sheep. Don't, put it, don't take it into your own hands to try to produce this outcome. We have lots of disastrous examples in the contemporary Christian community of people who had been prominent, seemingly used by God, who as time went on had been abusive in their leadership. Uh, God says, listen, no, this is not what this is about. This is a willing choice. The shepherd is sheep. You do that. And there is an exception clause here. You say, well, I don't see any. Well, it's the same exception clause in all of the scripture when the word hupotasso is used. What's the exception clause? To willingly make a choice to submit to the authority, whether it's civil, whether it's work, whether it's home, whether it's the church, unless the authority conflicts with God's word. Civil authority, obey. Unless they tell you to do something contrary to God's word. And you say, well, no, I, he's the Lord. I'll be submissive to you, I'll be honoring to you, but I'm not going to obey that. Because uh, God's word is more... Th same in the workplace. Well, I'm going to go and do this illegal thing because my boss told me to do that. God says, well, that might seem reasonable to the unbeliever, but for you as a believer, I don't give you that option. Because you have a higher authority. In the context of the home, well, my husband wants me to do this thing that's really contrary to God's word, but after all, they're the husband. And there would even been Christians unbiblical enough. And let me frame it that way. It's actually accountable to people say, well, you just go ahead and do it anyway because God wants you to be submissive to them and he'll hold them accountable for it. What kind of stupidity is that, brothers and sisters? That would mean that you would counsel something absolutely contrary to the scriptures. 
kind of counsel would that be? And yet it happens, of which I've sadly seen the aftermath of in different people's lives. No, there's, there's an exception clause the scripture gives us when somebody in authority is trying to get us to do something contrary to God, contrary to his word, contrary to God's clear call on our life. All right, there are exceptions. Uh, but generally speaking, my experience has been that now, while that can happen in the context of a flock, um, more often uh, what's, what's happening is somebody is trying to guide us in a way where I don't like that program or I'd prefer a different budget. It's, it, they're not exactly like the Sanhedrin telling Peter, James, and John, don't proclaim the name of Jesus. It's like, well, you judge for yourselves whether, <laughs> but we can't help but obey God. I mean, you follow, it's not, there's a different nature of problem that can arise short of, uh, of the breaking of the word. And that, by the way, can happen in churches. I'm not denying that. Uh, nor I've been called in to deal with such things. But uh, that can happen. But it's, more, it's a rarer problem. The, more often the problem is somebody wants to do a program I don't, I don't like or this new priority, I don't like this priority or whatever. It's more on that order. And God says within the context, it's not the only thing he says about it, so don't get, let's not get overly simplistic. There's a lot of the word of God that comes to bear on issues pertaining to the whole body. But at least insofar as hupatasso is concerned. God says, my basic orientation for the sheep is I want you to be submissive. I want you to make a choice, hupatasso, a self-choice, to be submissive to leadership. Well, that's the bridge principle, <laughs> linking us back, moving us forward. But then he builds on this, and he says, listen, uh, I want you to clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We've already seen that the, that the under-shepherds are commanded by God not to abuse that leadership role, you know, be humble, in other words, like the Lord Jesus in the midst of it. Now he's talking to the sheep, and he says, oh, it's the same thing to be true of you. I want you to choose to clothe yourselves with humility. You cannot be a growing disciple and not also be clothing yourself with humility. They are conf conflicting concepts. The growing disciple must be clothed with humility. If you're looking for a dress code for a church, you found it. Here's your dress code. Dress on, put on humility. Dress code of a church should never have anything to do with whether you're wearing a tie or not a tie, or how formally you dress or how informally you dress. I think the whole range of things are supposed to be there, just like there's slave and free, Jew and Greek. <laughs> Everything's supposed to make up a church. We ought to have great diversity on all kinds of levels. Uh, even a pastor that wears an insignia shirt once in a while. I mean, there ought to be diversity here, all right? That's okay. But God says, hey, there is a dress code I want among the sheep. Here's this fold. What's the dress code? I want you to, I want you to be humble with each other. Humility. Are you wearing the proper wardrobe today in our church? Did you come today with that wardrobe on? Are you determined to keep it on? 
in the midst of our time together? And I address that to everybody, including myself. You know, is that, is that what I want to put on? God says, all right, that's what I want you to wear. I want you to wear humility. So what is this humility then? What is it that we're supposed to be wearing? What, what is this dress code all about? To paint us in the Greek, which means lowliness of mind is a good translation of that. That's what, that's what the word is. It, it's a description of servant mentality. That's what it means, literally. That's often how it was used in the Greek language. Servant mentality. A servant, a, pers- a servant, a humble servant, is one not preoccupied with their own rights, their personal gain, but preoccupied with the assignment. In other words, here's my task. That's what I do. That's, that's my focus to accomplish what God said to do. Uh, not, well... I didn't get enough time off, or I didn't get this, or I didn't get that. You know, it's no, no, it's that. Tapenos. Tapenos. You say, well, I don't know, that's how important is that to God? I want to read you a verse. Matthew chapter eleven, verse twenty nine. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you. I want you to learn from me, for I am gentle. Ah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, okay, I get that, Lord. I am gentle, and I am teponos. That's the Greek word. Translated in the ESV, I am lowly in heart. Teponos. says, Jesus, I want you to learn from me. I want you to look like me. Part of looking like me means you put on humility. You be lowly in heart. Like, I am lonely. And then he goes on and he says, and you'll find rest for your souls. I think a lot of times, souls aren't very restful because people aren't very teponos. As believers now. Nobody finds a rest apart from redemption, but you can be redeemed and not feel very restful in a practical sense, in your day-to-day walk. Humility's a key to this. Uh, we are to choose to dress like Christ. And that doesn't mean wear robe, flowing robe, seamless. Uh, it's dressed like he was dressed. Uh, gentle. Goes against my grain, Lord. I've grown up in a world where if you're gentle, you get walked over. Yeah, yeah. But he's gentle. And he's lowly in heart. Doesn't seem to be the way to win the world, Lord. Well, if he thought it was... Probably he's right, you know. I, I don't know, just my guess. He did something right in doing this. Humility in the flock, I think, is the glue that's holding a flock together, ultimately. Uh, a church doesn't stick together because of pressure. You know, people putting pressure tactics on people. Uh, although you can try to revert to that. Uh, you can begin to increase the negatives for the people that aren't willing to carry out all the stuff and do the things that they're supposed to do. But I think God wants us to reject the temptation to do that kind of thing. That's not how it works. Uh, God's way is to clothe yourselves with humility. By the way, this phrase, clothe yourselves, translates a Greek phrase which literally means tie on the servant apron. Literally, that's how it translates. Tie on the servant's apron. 
That's pretty lonely. <laughs> that really does flesh out what the Panos is all about. That's a pretty lonely thing. Peter had to be thinking. Had to be thinking at this point. Not because he authored this. God authored it, breathed it out through him. But he had to be thinking. His Holy Spirit was moving upon him and writing these words. He says, I know what that's about. I saw one tie on the servant's apron. It was on that night leading to his death. Arrest. Ties on the servant's apron. Wonder I'm washing my feet. You know, forget that kind of thing. You know, the Savior who then goes on and gives his life for you is washing your feet. God says, okay, I'm going to breathe out my word. We're going to tie this in, Peter. You remember that example by the Jesus whom you're supposed to be dressing like? He tied on the servant's apron. Servanthood, loneliness of mind, humility. That's how you deal with each other. Left an impression on Peter. And Jesus uses this visual aid. So how well is the visual aid working out in your day-to-day relationship in a body of believers? Do you come, do you come to it saying, yeah, where's the servant's apron? What can I do? Here, let me get you that cup of coffee. Let me, what can I do? Or is it, I'm church shopping. What kind of things can you offer me? I mean, what are you looking for? God says, look for the servant's apron. That's, that's the mentality. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody, everybody's wearing aprons? It's like, hey, there's nobody to wait on. You know, okay, great problem. Great problem. You know, uh, May our church have that problem. May we have that problem. You say, well, how important is all of this in the big scheme of things anyway with God? And Well, verse 5 ends by saying, uh, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, let's think about that for a minute. How important is all of this? Humility's importance is underscored by the fact God promises... He will oppose you if you are proud, not humble. He promises that. This word oppose, antitasso in the Greek, means to array the army for battle. It's the picture they used. You know, where you, you know, because in those days the armies all kind of, they, they weren't fighting long distance. They were arraigned in, a, in this, here are the fields or here's the valley. And you got this, this line of army, this line of army, and boom, they come together. Arraying your army. God uses this word. He says, okay, child of mine who have turned your faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore I've adopted you, you got a choice. Do you want me arrayed against you? Or do you want me for you? In practice, here in this world. We're not talking eternal life now. Here in this world. And I think, well, Lord, how, how important you take this clothing yourself. God says, see that army over there? I'm on the other side of it. I'm opposing you if you choose not to be humble. That is exceedingly sobering, isn't it? I mean, it's like gulp. You mean you take it that serious? God says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, t- I take it that serious. I can be for you. 
or I can be against you. Thinking Romans 8.31, which is a great verse. <laughs> what then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? Well, in eternal life, yeah, that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> Isn't it good that God's for us and not against us and we're covered by the righteousness of Christ, justified? But as a practical consideration here and now, can it be said that God is for me? Or can 1 Peter 5, 6 be said, God opposes me? He's one of his sheep. What's true of your life? I, as I say, I find these things incredibly sobering. I mean, <laughs> they're different things where I, honestly, I come before God and I say, I wish you hadn't said that. Uh, you know, life was, I was doing pretty good this week. And then, well, you pointed out what wasn't right. Mm, that's awful uncomfortable, Lord. He says, yeah, I know, I intended it to be. You know, this, uh, pointing it out. Are you humble? But then he makes a promise here. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in due time he may exalt you. He gives grace to the humble. God says, listen, uh, it's not just that I'm commanding you to be this way, which I am, of course, but uh, I promise to give you grace <laughs> if you're humble, if you take on typenos, the servant thing, the lowliness of mind. The word grace is used, well, it's actually used more than two ways in the scripture, but there's two dominating ways the word grace is used in the Bible. One of the ways it's dominantly used is to describe undeserved benefit as in being saved by grace, not our works. You know, it's an, it's an undeserved benefit. That's why we mean we're saved by grace. Praise God. You know, we didn't earn it. But the Bible doesn't always use the word grace that way. Sometimes the word uses the word grace to describe God's provision of strength. So when you're reading through the scriptures, every time you encounter the word grace, he's not talking about the means of salvation. He's talking about the means of enablement for here and now. God gives grace. That's what's being used here. He says, I'll give you the strength. And I promise you. You say, well, yeah, it's pretty, not only thankless, but pretty doggone hard to be a servant, Lord. And God says, yeah, I know it is. I promise you I'll give you strength to carry out being a servant. Enablement. Enablement. Not merely undeserved benefit. Although even the enablement's undeserved, obviously. But still, he's distinguishing in it. And he says, does it look like a big task to you to be a servant like my son? It is a big task, but I promise to give you grace to do it. I promise to enable you, to empower you, to move forward with it. So it isn't just you. It isn't just you. Final word on this. The problem that I have, and I suspect all of us have to some degree, when it comes to this humility issue and servanthood, I, I kind of like, I would kind of like to be lifted up now on my timetable. You know, it's been, been tough to be, a, tough to be a servant, tough to be misunderstood, kind of tough to be ignored, kind of tough, whatever, all that comes with servanthood. I think it's about time you raise me up, Lord. Not strengthen me to be a servant now. That's not what we're talking about. It's not, it's, I think it's time for you to vindicate me. Time for people to see my rightful role. 
And God says, uh, I want you to humble yourself, therefore, under my mighty hand, drawing on my strength, so that at the proper time, the right time, I may exalt you at the proper time. And we say, well, Lord, I'd like today to be the proper time. God says, I know you would. But it isn't. It isn't. So are you going to stop being a servant because it's not the proper time to exalt you? You're going to keep on serving. You're going to keep on doing. Say, okay, give me the, give me the servant's apron again then, Lord. <laughs> I'll just keep on keeping on until you decide it's the right time. Now's the time to be humble. To put the servant apron on. Okay. And you say, well... It doesn't seem fair that God does it that way. I mean, I'm his child after all. How about his only begotten son? Humbled himself to come into this world. Servant to us. Lived. Died. Rose again. You know when his lifting up glory time is? At his return. Most people treat him with disdain now. Isn't that true? Jesus... God's not asking for anything from us. He doesn't also demonstrate in His Son. Are you willing to put a servant's apron on as long as the servant's apron needs to be put on? Are you going to get angry and take your marbles and go home? You know, what's it about? How are you going to deal with God? And God says, listen, sheep are to choose to clothe themselves with humility. You say, oh man, these things are pretty tough, Lord. <laughs> well, he's, he's not done yet. He's, he moves on and he says, now I want you to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The sheep doing these things are also called to choose, and this is a choice, to cast their anxieties on him. The word anxiety is a good translation here of the Greek word marimna, which means to be divided and distracted in our mind. The, the Greeks used that to describe an individual whose mind was constantly assailed and preoccupied with something. They try to get it out of their mind and it doesn't want to go away. Sound like anxiety to you? Something's pressing on your life and you don't want to keep thinking about it. And you say, well, I'm just not going to think about that. And you take two steps and it pops back in your mind again. That's what marimna is. The inescapable distraction of life. God says, have any of those? And you say, well, it's happened once or twice, Lord. You know? and, uh, and God says, well, if you've got any of those things, I'm wanting you to cast them on me. I don't want you to simply try to stoically stand there, try to practice some sort of mental discipline, where your mind just doesn't drift that way. There are people that counsel people that way. And the very fact they counsel them that way means they're not counseling biblically. God's not calling for stoicism in people. He says, no, don't. <laughs> if you commit yourself to pretense, you've already lost the battle. No, like pretend like everything's okay. It's okay. Some people do a better job with pretense than others do. Some people can play the role out. And then the play ends, and you discover the actor's not like the role. God doesn't want you playing a role. So that's no way to solve anxieties by pretending. 
or working and working and working, finding what I can use to just not think about it. Maybe, maybe some of these Eastern mysticism ideas where I just sort of put my mind in neutral. Maybe there's my answer. And God says, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. There's no such thing as a neutral mind. If you think you're out of control, it means the enemy's in control. And it served the enemy's purposes to make you think like you feel pretty, pretty mellow. You know? uh, no, it's no answer. Uh, the, the, here's a different answer for anxieties. We're in this. And by the way, he's already told us in the fourth chapter, stress is inevitable. Remember, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on to test you, because like something strange is happening. I mean, he's already made it a point. We live in a fallen world. It's a mess. Our paths will cross it. We're going to be impacted by other people's choices. And... We impact ourselves by our choices. I mean, it's, it's a mess. It's, that's the nature of life in this fallen world. And he says, listen, you're going to have anxieties. It isn't a measure of being a dis- how good a disciple you are, whether you face anxieties or not. The measure is how you deal with anxieties, not whether you face them. There is no such walk where you don't have anxieties. That's... <laughs> Life will guarantee they're going to come your way. How do you deal with them? Well, God's answer, cast your anxieties on him. How are you going to deal with those inevitable, inescapable stresses, trials, injustices? All of us have suffered. How are you going to deal with it? Everything that would tend to produce anxiety, preoccupations in your mind, crowding in at the times you don't want to think about them. How are you going to handle it? He says, cast your anxieties on me. In other words, I want you to pray. I'm going to take things, I want you to bring them to me. Bring those inescapable, inevitable anxieties and give them to me. The temptation to anxiety won't go away because you're maturing. What will happen is you'll more likely act on it quicker by turning it over to me. Don't try to deal with it some other way. Bring it up. Bring it to me. Cast it on my hands. And he says here, I want you to practice casting care. Cast your anxieties. Cast those anxieties. And it's a chosen word breathed out by God And I think we don't pay enough attention to it. What does he mean we cast our anxieties? It's not just some analogy of prayer. It's a description of action. Casting. Epiripto. What's it mean? It means to throw out as far as you can. That's why we use that word, by the way, in English. We talk about cat. Think of fishing, for example. Maybe you're casting out the, the line. And... Unless you're fishing in a real small place, in a little bass area, and you want to put this thing over here. You know, you're casting out as far as, as, far as you can get that, especially if you're doing along the lake shore. You're get, trying to get that thing out there. Uh, that's casting. That's what the Greek word means. Throwing it out. It's not just saying, oh, Lord, here's an anxiety. Let me move on. It's that, <laughs> it's that active and aggressive he says, this shows you mean business with me. <laughs> Throw it out there. Cast it out. Let me tell you a story. I'm running out of time. I'm going to tell it to you anyway. 
Uh, when I was in high school, one of the things that I did uh, in sports is that I was in track and field, and I threw javelin. And I didn't just throw javelin. I was good at javelin. I, between my junior and senior year, I was invited to an AAU regional meet. And the AAU back in those days stopped in the late 80s or 70s as there were legal battles. But in those days, that was the group not, there was no Olympic committees. That was the group that looked over all amateur sports and was the breeding place to move people to different levels. And I thought, oh, this is, I got an invitation to go to this thing. I threw good. I, I, was, I was in the 200 range, 200 feet range in my javelin throwing in that time. And I mean, that's not Olympic caliber, but it was better than most of the other people in the high schools. And so I thought, oh, this is great. So I went to this, uh, went to this regional AAU meet. And the different people that were there wasn't a big group. There were like, I mean, of, of javelin throwers. There was, there was like a dozen of us. And, uh, and I felt one of the differences with me and these others that I, I was a lot younger than some of these other, other people, who I later would come to understand were all trial, in trials to move forward to be considered by the Olympic committees. And so they would be out there practicing, kind of getting their few throws in, finding out just exactly where I want to start, how to, you know, every, every javelin place is a little different. But anyway, they were working on those things, and I'd watch them just sort of practicing. And it began to occur to me, their practice throws are vastly farther than my best throw ever has been, you know. And, and I thought, this isn't going to turn out right. Uh, I can just see it, you know. There's going to be all of these amazing throws. In fact, some of these throws were getting close to 300 feet, which was Olympic competition at the point. And, and I'm thinking, let's see, I, I, I finally, when I throw 200, most of the other high school kids are back in here, and it really looks impressive. They're going a third farther than I'm going. This, this, this is uh, it's going to be an embarrassing thing. And uh, not that every eye in the stadium's on you at that time, but you have the feeling like it is. It's like, oh man, you know, I'm going to go up there and make a fool out of myself. And I did pretty much. Uh, my throw wasn't the greatest in the world at that time. <laughs> uh, the irony of this, by the way, is that I actually placed because a number of these others were so concerned with their form, they didn't care really whether they won or not. They, they were working on their form because that's what Olympian does. And, and they kept fouling out because their, one, their toe would cross this line in the, before they got rid of it. So I ended up with a, with a fourth place finish at this thing. And I'm thinking... Every throw I gave, I went out there was about 75 feet shorter than any of the other stuff going out there, and I got the fourth place, you know, my one claim to, uh, to athletic fame here. But I, here's what I was thinking during that. Why do I go to the example telling you this story? Here's what I kept thinking during that time. Oh, Lord, I wish I could throw it as far. I wish I could hurl it better. After I became a Christian at 18... And different people intersected my life who were believers, and some were disciples of me, some were mentors. I began to have the same feeling. Like, I wish I could hurl it like them. They, they seem to be able to take the burden of their life, and they just, they throw it way farther than I'm throwing it toward God. Oh, Lord, I'm throwing this thing 
and it's almost sticking five feet in front of my foot. Now, I did better in javelin, but sometimes not in prayer. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm throwing, I'm casting it on the Lord. But it's so darn close. What was that? I mean, it's right there. I'm still holding it. I'm still dealing with it. No wonder it's preoccupying my mind. I need to throw it as far as possible. Do you approach prayer that way? That's what God is saying. That's why he uses this illustration. He says, I want you to approach prayer, casting it every ounce of energy you have, you put into that throw. So when you go pray about it, you say, Lord, take it. Take it. And since he's got the measuring tape, he knows whether I threw it or not. If I say, take it, and it goes out three feet, it looks at me and says, what do you mean, take it? You getting serious about this, or you're not getting serious about it? Are you going to put it in my hands, or aren't you going to put it in my hands? Well, the only way any of us are going to deal with persisting preoccupations, which is what anxiety is, the only way any of us are going to deal with that successfully, biblically, is by making the decision to cast it into the Lord's hands as far and as hard as we can. Not merely hand it over. This isn't like a relay race. But they didn't let me race, by the way. I never was that speedy. Uh, uh, they said, eh, field event guy. You know, so that's kind of what I did during those years. You know, eh, throw the javelin, discus. We don't want you out there in any of these races that count, because, you know. But in those races, those relay races, they were handing off the batons. God doesn't use that image. God doesn't use that image. It's not like I'm getting really close and he's got his hand back. And I'm... No, God says, that ain't going to work. Throw it as far as you can throw it. Do your best to get rid of it. Get it out of your hands, into his hands. And you say, well, I did that. But came back to me later that day or tomorrow. Throw it again. <laughs> I mean, when I was throwing javelin, you had practice every day. And just, okay, another day to throw it. And what you do when you practiced was to try to throw it as far as you could. You didn't just toss it a couple feet. What would make us cast our cares? By the way, it's the same principle you see in Philippians 4, isn't it? Where he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Are you throwing it far enough? Uh, here's the thing. Nobody tosses the javelin. Nobody's going to throw that prayer out as hard as it needs to go. Unless two things are true. Number one, I'm convinced of my personal inadequacy. And the proof positive of whether I'm convinced of my personal inadequacy is whether I truly cast prayers. It's not a matter of going through the motion of praying. So if I come before God and I say, oh Lord, I am, I cannot deal with that. There is no way I can resolve and solve this issue. It's you or nothing. And God says, okay, you got the picture. You got the picture. You're going to really toss that javelin if you know that you're inadequate apart to face it 
so you want to get it in my hands. You're desperate to get it in my hands. I don't think most of us are desperate enough. We just keep thinking, maybe, maybe I can work out some of these life pressures and issues. Maybe I can do some things to make it kind of go smoother. Uh, why bother God with it? You know, I think I can do it. Better to come and say, hey, Lord, I can't do it. Secondly, I'm only going to throw that javelin. If it's helpful for you, I don't care if you remember the javelin. That's not the point here. But it's helpful for me. I'm only going to throw that javelin if I'm convinced absolutely at the deepest level of my heart, he cares for me. Cares for me. Melo in the Greek, which means takes an interest in. You mean the Heavenly Father wasn't just interested in my salvation and adopting me into his family, but he's interested, truly takes an interest in everything I'm encountering, including all of these things that tend to distract my mind? Does God really have that view of me? And the answer is, yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to keep convincing yourself of that. He cares for you. This passage says God feels mellow, Greek mellow, not mellow, mellow. He feels that care for you. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, that he actually feels about every situation you face. He takes an interest in it. He cares about it. He wants you to toss it. Do I really believe in a God like that? What's my theology like? Do I really see God that way? It'll make a difference how far I throw the javelin. If I believe he cares, okay, okay, let's, let's throw it. <laughs> let's throw it into his hands. Brother and sister, you don't have to convince God to care about you. You don't have to convince him. You don't need to bribe him. Like, oh, I've got this prayer request, Lord. And listen, if you'll do this, I'll do this and this and this. That's not what it's about. I don't have to convince God. Romans 5.8 tells me, hey, God, God showed how much he loves me, and that while I was still a messed up sinner, Christ died for me. Well, that's pretty convincing proof, Lord. <laughs> yeah, that's the case. How about John 3.16? God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You mean you love me enough to send your son? Yeah. Does that mean you love me maybe enough to care about what's troubling me? Yeah. Yeah. There have been vastly too many times in my life where I've played at prayer. And I don't mean playing at it by looking for formulas. I pray about things I haven't really tossed in his hand at all. I'm, I'm doing it in a sanctified sort of way. It's like, well, I know I'm supposed to pray about these things, so I'm going to pray about them. And God has to keep working in my life and say, are you serious in this competition or not? Are you going to toss this thing? Are you going to cast it? Or are you still playing games? So how are the sheep supposed to do God says, well, the third thing I want you doing is sheep in this flock, because I want you to be serious about it. I want you throwing your needs and your 
anxiety producers at me. I can take it. I can take it. And if you do any less than that, you haven't really gotten rid of them at all. You haven't gotten rid of them at all. I can remember talking with God about this in my life and saying, Lord, are you telling, are you saying that I really, these different times I came to you about this thing, I, I, I wasn't really serious about it? And he says, yeah, basically, that's what I'm saying to you. You were hoping somehow you could convince me to do something that I wasn't serious about throwing in your hands. And he says, son, often has to say that to me. Like, as a father, it's like, son. You know, I was like, oh man, you know. See me as I am. And see yourself as you are. He says, things will work out better for us. Things will work out. So, how are you doing with the casting? We're going to have a couple weeks break in our study of 1 Peter as we spend a couple of the weeks getting closer to Christmas and so forth, looking at some passages of Scripture that intersect uh, the birth of Christ and the wonder of the Incarnation. But as we get back, Lord willing, to our study of 1 First, uh, Peter, we'll turn attention to the upcoming verses, which... In verses 8 to 11, we encounter something very, very important to remind us about as sheep. We face spiritual warfare. Which, when I look at it, then it probably makes sense, Lord, that the first thing you told me was I need to cast my anxieties on you. (laughs) Now you're going to tell me there's some good, even better reasons why I better be doing that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for some time together this day to be in your word. Uh, You try to make it plain to us what we we need to be, what your intentions are. and Lord, uh, at different times it just kind of goes against (laughs) our inclinations, and yet you love us enough to keep saying things. And so, Lord, would you take these passages we've been looking at and through the work of your Spirit, penetrate our hearts that we would recognize the right applications in each of us to all of these things. And for this, we'll give you thanks and praise, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.